I saw in my childhood discrimination, gender-based violence, domestic violence, caste-based violence. So, you know, I wanted to do something for those um, women who are really marginalized. I want to be change agent for my community. But because I'm from the rural area, I'm from the very backwarded community, uh, you know, I'm a woman from the Dalit community, it was not easy. I'm a black woman that does work in the <laughs> in the South, in <laughs> the United States of America. I am queer. I am talking about sex and bodies. I am talking about art as a revolutionary act. It's like every issue area that has been criminalized, violated, like I'm embodying that on a daily basis. In 1998, the issues of racism and discrimination against marginalized communities were not on the agenda of many global human rights organizations. But the activists on the ground, particularly women human rights defenders, were hard at work and in danger because of it. Lawyer and women rights activist Hina Jelani. While human rights defenders are all at risk and face common challenges, women human rights defenders have an extra uh, and double jeopardy because these are defenders who are working in areas where women culturally and socially are not a part of the public domain and the very fact that they step into the public domain makes them targets. This is On the Side of Humanity, how human rights defenders fight for our present and future. My name is Tatiana Mavshevich and I'm a campaigner at Amnesty International. In this series, I'm exploring how the human rights movement has evolved over the last 25 years. And I'm meeting courageous individuals across the globe who are risking their lives for the marginalized, persecuted and oppressed. Along the way, I'm trying to understand how their work is shaping our collective future. Article 2.1 from the Declaration on Human Rights Defenders. Each state has the prime responsibility and duty to protect, promote, and implement all human rights and fundamental freedoms. As the negotiations around the Declaration were nearing the final phase, in 1994, a group of black women in the U.S. coined the term reproductive justice and started a movement as a response to discrimination faced by women of color. Its three core values are a right to have children, not to have children, and to parent them in sustainable communities. Activist and artist Monica Simpson remembers her excitement when she first heard about the concept of reproductive justice. I was looking for a movement that understood the totality of who I was, that I didn't have to check a part of my identity at the door. Because when I was doing LGBTQ work, you know, my blackness, you know, wasn't always accepted in those spaces. And doing civil rights work, sometimes my queerness wasn't really allowed in the room in the same kind of way. And then here comes this reproductive justice framework that gives us the ability to talk about the interconnectedness of our lives. And I was like, this is it. 
this is it for me. What Monica couldn't imagine at the time is that a few years later, she'd become the head of the National Reproductive Justice Collective, Sisterson. She grew up in a southern US town where the high teenage pregnancy rate was the elephant in the room. I was born and raised in rural North Carolina in this small town called Union County where the racial line was just very clear. Like the black folks were here, the white folks were there. I grew up in a place where abstinence-only education was what we had. And so we didn't grow up learning about our bodies or what happens to our bodies. And so I was forced to kind of do that work on my own as a young person. And, you know, almost every young girl was pregnant in my church before graduating high school. So nobody was talking about sex and bodies. And they were shamed and stigmatized for that. I had so many questions that just were not being answered. As she was battling against homophobia during her university years, Monica unexpectedly confronted her own deep-seated beliefs. I decided to go to an HBCU, which is an historical Black college. I came out, you know, as this young Black lesbian at the time, but it wasn't a very safe time to announce that you were gay back in the 1999s and 2000s. And so my activism started with that, like trying to create safe spaces for the other queer students that were on campus. And so as I was doing that, a dear friend of mine came to me and said that, you know, she was pregnant and she didn't want to be. And I was like, well, we're Black folks. It's cool. We're going to have our babies because I didn't realize how deeply indoctrinated I was to this idea that Black women and abortion don't go together. But she was very clear that she was the first person going to college in her family. And she had a plan for herself. And she asked me to support her in getting an abortion. And so I supported her and, you know, saw what she had to go through to get access to an abortion in North Carolina. At the time, it was scary. It was hard. And it was one of those, you know, those moments where I was kind of shaped. According to data provided by the CDC, the U.S. National Public Health Agency, Black American women are almost three times more likely to die during childbirth than white women. In 2014, Sisterson addressed the crisis in Black maternal mortality at the UN. We were starting to get this data that was making us ask some questions. We were seeing that, like, in these southern states, that maternal mortality was on the rise. And what we wanted to understand was what was at the root of that. And so as we surveyed women, in particular, we focused in on Georgia and Mississippi. And what we got was that it didn't matter how much money people made. It didn't matter how much education the Black woman had, that she was still being treated differently in her doctor's office, that she wasn't given access to information in the way that she was asking for it. She wasn't listened to. There were so many barriers that was coming up for folks. And they were also talking about how they felt like they were discriminated against as Black women as they were entering into conversations with their healthcare providers. Advocacy at the UN led to national, state, and local reforms around Black maternal mortality. But progress is slow and painful. 50 years of a legally enshrined right to abortion in the United States has been brought to an end after the country's Supreme Court decided to overturn its landmark ruling made in 1973. It means that tens of millions of women across the U.S. do not have their right to an abortion guaranteed by the Constitution.
it's a scary time in the United States of America for those of us who are looking to be protected for our bodies and our ability to make our own decisions about our bodies and our families and our futures. Our opposition has tried so many strategies and tactics, like shaming Black women for their reproductive decision-making. There was one campaign that we had to combat that said that the most dangerous place for an African-American child is in the mother's womb. And we had to respond with our own narrative campaign that's called Trust Black Women. Like, you can't tell us what we can do with our bodies. So they've been trying to hit us from many different angles. So can y'all repeat after me a little bit? Can y'all sing a little bit with little sister today? We must fight for freedom. We must fight for freedom. We must fight for justice. We must fight for justice. It will take all of us. Working in human rights, I'm used to tension and a subdued atmosphere. So while speaking to Monica, I was struck by her optimism even from the other side of the globe. Sister Son's website reflects it too. Alongside advocacy, there are family walks and music, photography exhibitions, and community celebrations. Monica is confident that without art and joy, you won't get far. When I felt like the attacks were coming on stronger and stronger, I felt more and more compelled to create as opposed to organize. I don't think that we can do our work of social justice, of human rights, or any of that if we are not deeply connected and making sure that artists are central to how we do our work. They have to understand, they have to start to understand that they can't take our freedom. How do we find every opportunity to create cultural interventions? And cultural interventions are like these really intentional actions that are created to dismantle, to disrupt the status quo, right? That really is about bringing healing and joy into our communities that then helps to move them towards action. And so how do we use this as a way to really shift our culture in the way that is going to move us closer to the wins that we want and need? Article 1 from the Declaration on Human Rights Defenders. Everyone has the right, individually and in association with others, to promote and to strive for the protection and realization of human rights and fundamental freedoms at the national and international levels. There are power imbalances within human rights movements, within any movements, Sexual rights activist and expert on UN advocacy, Cynthia Rothschild. Some people have voice and some people don't, or importantly, don't think they have voice. Historically, activists fighting for freedom of speech, assembly and association have been at the center of global campaigns and media coverage. And today, these topics rightly continue to draw a lot of international attention. But there are other issues that until recently have been swept under the rug and neglected for generations. Caste-based discrimination is one of them. 
we are not counted as a human rights defender. Only the dominant caste people are a human rights defender. This is Durga Sob, the founder of the feminist Dalit organization, which fights discrimination against Dalit women in Nepal. Dalit is a commonly used name for the lowest caste on the Indian subcontinent. For centuries, Dalit people were known as untouchable or impure and lived in extreme poverty on the margins of society with no rights. Today, there are approximately 260 million Dalit people in the world. And even though caste-based discrimination is officially prohibited, prejudice is still rife. I'm fighting for my dignity. Now we are dealing the issue of intercaste marriage. Many people being killed because of they fall in love with dominant caste girls. Many people be beaten and uh, displaced and then not accepted by the dominant caste family. Many people being killed. Dalit women are especially vulnerable. They're targets of sexual violence and sexual slavery often perpetrated by men from upper castes, and they almost never achieve justice. The International Dalit Solidarity Network estimates that 98% of those who do degrading work such as human waste removal are Dalit women. In their own communities, they often live under the threat of violence too. Discrimination against Durga began on the day she was born. I'm from very uh, remote part of the country. In my childhood, I faced lots of the discrimination based on caste and gender, as a being a, a Dalit, and then as a being a, a from the poor family. I was a third girls when my mother gave birth to me, and my mother was expecting son. And everybody shouting to my mother, oh, again, you you have a girl child. And then my mother was so, um, you know, embarrassed or she was so, uh, you know, frustrated. And then she decided she wants to kill me and she wants to die. She didn't give me the um, breastfeeding till three days. And then after three days, she gave me the uh, breastfeeding. Durga and her mother survived the birth and soon formed an unbreakable bond. Several years went by and Durga's mother had to confound people's expectations once again. There were no any opportunity for the Dalit children, especially girls, to go to the school. But luckily, my mother, she was so strong and she encouraged me to go to the school because we have to do so many chores at home, collect the fire, collect the grass, and then collect the water. But my mother decided, I'll do everything, but you go to the school, get the education. Neighbors and family members flock to their house and tried to talk Durga's mother out of her unfathomable plan. She stood strong, and Durga started attending school. 
But then, parents of upper-caste children found out that there was a Dalit girl in class. I wanted to um, sit in front of the desk, but uh, I was not allowed to go there. I'm not allowed to drink the water in school. Uh, if I play with the, my friend, they will be the impure. They didn't want to play with me because I'm from the Dalit community, I'm from the low caste, and then they didn't eat with me. It was so deep-rooted in my mind. So that's why I decided I have to go to the big city and I have to start some work on this issue. Despite years of segregation and mistreatment in class and outside school, Durga received a good education, learned English and founded her organization. Each and every step we got a threat from the landlord, from the elite group, from the non-Dalit, because they didn't allow Dalit to organize and to fight for their rights. They didn't want. But I determined to work on this issue. You don't need to ask anyone's permission to become a human rights defender, says Mary Lawler, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights Defenders. It's this right And it applies to everyone. It's not just a privileged few. And that is something that I think we need to really push governments on. Today, the feminist Dalit organization is a lifeline to some of the most marginalized women in Nepal and a powerful drive for change. We have a strong advocacy and lobby and we have a thousand of women's groups who are engaging in the issue. Now we have a thousand of women are elected at the local unit of the government. We are also trying to raise this issue international level. And so I am satisfied because Dalit women are organized all over the country. Dalit women enhance their capacity, build their leadership and fighting for their equality, justice and dignity. In movies, stories of human rights defenders often begin with hardship and end with their glorious victory and change in hearts and minds. But the realities of our world are more cruel. A repugnant, ancient stigma still hangs over Durga's head like a sword. It's so strong that even a glass of water from a public tap can cost Durga her life. Many people rescue me many times. Every time I'm arrested by police and I'm beaten by police and... We have no entry into the public places. And I try to break this barrier to entry into the temple, to get the water from the public tap. I want to be a human being. People treat me as a human being. Article 12.1 of the Declaration on Human Rights Defenders. Everyone has the right, individually and in association with others, to participate in peaceful activities against violations of human rights and fundamental freedoms. Another topic that is now far more prevalent and widely discussed than 25 years ago is migration. For lack of better policies, migrants and asylum seekers are conveniently blamed for all of society's evils. 
they described as a catastrophe ready to sweep away the great cities and cultures. The fact that migration, a phenomenon that has existed since the dawn of humanity, is often the result of global inequality and historic injustices, is omitted from many debates. In reality, only a fraction of people on the move actually set off for Europe, and many of them perish along the way. Hello, how are you doing? It's really nice to meet you. Yeah, really nice to meet you as well. Thanks so much for coming. I'm meeting Sean Binder on one of the hottest days of the year. Having cycled through scorching East London, Sean is out of breath at first, but keen to jump straight into the interview. See a spread of sandwiches? He didn't have to do all this for just for me. <laughs> He's got a lot on his plate. What with the recent qualification as a criminal barrister, and busy work at a law reform charity. He's enthusiastic, cheerful, and humorous. I'd never be able to guess the turmoil he's been going through over the last six years. I grew up in Ireland. Ireland is one of the least densely populated countries in Europe. It's very quiet. I grew up right by the shoreline. I fell in love with the ocean. I surfed. I loved being on boats. I learned to scuba dive. When I was 16, I took a rescue diving course. And then my master's degree was in European defense and security policy, which is when I realized that the way that the European Union responds to one of the most severe crises, humanitarian crises, to befall this continent since the end of the Second World War is not by helping those people in that crisis, but by abandoning them in that crisis. Survivors say 750 people were on the boat that capsized off the Greek coast on Wednesday. Only a hundred of them were rescued, meaning this could be one of the worst refugee disasters in the Mediterranean. Even though people have a legal right to seek asylum in Europe and anywhere else, research suggests that's not being honored. Ironically, when we try to stop smuggling by not allowing people to cross the border safely, by creating border infrastructure that locks our borders down, we actually facilitate smuggling. Vulnerable people are put into dinghies that are designed safely for 10 people, and I've seen 86 people crammed into them, oftentimes not wearing life jackets. Little children, little, little children holding high-visibility fabrics. And it's a high-visibility fabric in which a bottle of water that has been emptied has been stitched into to give the illusion of safety. And so we don't provide enough humanitarian assistance. And those policies are being enacted in, in our name, the name of European citizens. And so I felt I had a certain responsibility. In 2017, Sean moved to the island of Lesbos in Greece and began to volunteer in a search and rescue organization. The vast majority of people who make that journey are survivors. They have survived an incredibly difficult journey, oftentimes through many dangerous contexts. And so, what I mostly did, to be perfectly honest with you, is stand at the shoreline, quite boringly, from the hours of midnight to 7 a.m., almost every night, just looking out to sea, looking into the darkness, really just listening. Because the best way to identify a boat in distress is to listen for screams. If there was a boat in distress, we'd notify the Coast Guard. And if we were asked to do so, we would render assistance out at sea. Or if we weren't asked to do so, we would prepare on the shoreline and hope that they make it and that we could offer them 
triage and medical support once they land. A few months went by. Sean was sharing a house together with other volunteers and established a well-oiled routine. They kept watch at night, slept in the late morning, and trained in the afternoon. One night in February 2018, Sean and another activist, Sarah Mardini, went to do their usual shift on the shoreline. It was a day like any other. The day begins at midnight. And we were standing here looking out to sea until about 3 a.m. when the police arrive. This is not unusual. They have done this on many occasions for years. They get out of their car. Now they ask us for our passports. Again, not a huge divergence of what common practice is. They often check volunteers' passports. And while it's a little bit intimidating, it's not unusual. But then they call for backup more police officers arrive, they say that we must go with them to the Coast Guard police station in the town. They arrest us without telling us why. They strip us, they take our things. After spending two days in the same prison cell, Sean and Sarah were released without any explanation. They went on with volunteering and during migrant search and rescue, often worked alongside the police. In August of 2018, Sarah was about to return to Berlin for her studies. And she was just about to board the flight at around 6 a.m., I think, when plainclothes police officers surrounded her and said, Sarah, wait, before you go, we have a couple of more questions for you. You'll be on the next flight to Berlin, don't worry. Then they called me as well. They said, Sean, we have further questions for you. I handed myself in, I sat down, and I said, after not having been told anything for hours sitting there. Look, I have to go back to the clinic. We have to volunteer. We have things to do. I'm going to go. And I stood up to leave and Sarah was about to follow when the police officer who had ignored us for hours until this point said, you're going nowhere. You're under arrest. We're taking you to the courthouse. You're going to be formally charged. Put out your arms. In the final episode of the series, we'll find out what happened to Sean and meet an investigative journalist from Ghana who never reveals his appearance. Using my hidden camera and my anonymity, I set out to look for the bad guys. I name, I shame, and I put them behind bars. This series was written and presented by me, Tatiana Mavshevich. It was produced by Eli Block, who also composed much of the original music. The editor is Guadalupe Marengo, head of Global Human Rights Defenders Program at Amnesty International. In this episode, you also heard Monica Ray Simpson's Freedom Song from her album Revolutionary Love. Huge thanks to all our colleagues at the International Service for Human Rights and within Amnesty who provided their feedback. And of course, special thanks to all the human rights defenders who took part in this series. If you enjoyed this program, please share it with your networks or anyone who might find it valuable.